Welcome to the Real Estate Trainer Podcast with your host, Brian Eisenhower. This podcast is brought to you by Eisenhower Coaching and Consulting. ICC provides customized and structured coaching and training programs for real estate agents and team leaders, representing many of the top producing agents in North America. ICC also offers broker and owner consulting on agents recruiting, training, and retention. For more info, visit EisenhowerCoaching.com or find us on Facebook. If we're just negotiating price, the key is to keep pulling that middle number up further and further and further. And it is a process that we call monkey in the middle. The whole idea of negotiations, it's, it's really interesting. When people think of negotiation, they think of kind of pairing up against another person or entity and then going back and forth and haggling and negotiating, um, which there is some of that in real estate, right? We've got an agent representing a buyer and an agent representing a seller, and, and they negotiate back and forth. But believe it or not, in real estate, it's a little bit more complex. And a lot of that has to do with uh, a concept called vicarious liability. And with vicarious liability, we as real estate professionals step into the shoes of our clients and act on their behalf in a lot of ways. Yet, oftentimes, we feel differently about situations like our client is not on the same page as us. Our client is not doing the things we want them to for their own best interests. And that can be very frustrating in real estate. So oftentimes the negotiations are actually easier than having the difficult conversations with our clients to get them bought in on a negotiating position. And that's a very important part of this. Um, so I wouldn't say we're negotiating with our clients, but we are also try- we are trying to provide them with the material information that they need to make informed decisions. And oftentimes logic doesn't apply. There's a lot of emotion in there. There's a lot of denial in there that we have to kind of battle through to get them to make the, the right decision. And that's true of any professional. If you think of other professionals out there, let's think about a doctor, okay? I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've all been to a doctor and our doctor tells us we need to quit coffee or we need to stop drinking or we start to, we need to start exercising or we gotta stop eating things with gluten in them or you know, stop drinking energy drinks or whatever. Somehow we gotta get healthier with our fitness or our diet. And it's easier said than done. And we're kind of like, okay, I hear you, but I don't agree with you, or I can't because of this excuse, you know, and and we're not necessarily taking our professional's advice. And I'm sure doctors say this all the time. All they can do is tell us the information and disclose the information and what their patients do with it is on them, right? The problem with us though, the problem in real estate is we have to then take that information and tell it to the other side. (laughs) You know what I mean? We have to act on it immediately and negotiate from oftentimes a weaker position than we would have been otherwise had our clients taken our advice. So that's why having those difficult conversations with our clients is gonna be something we cover in this today too, because not only, you know, negotiating is one thing, posturing is one thing with the other party. Whether you be the seller, we're talking about the buyer, whether you're the buyer, we're talking about the seller. The relationship between the agent and the client comes into play tremendously. How much control, how much convincing that you had over your client to get them to understand the tough actions they often need to take that ultimately gets them the results they want that are in their best interests, right? So we got to have those conversations. So we have to have courage. We have to have courage to have tough conversations with your clients to either put them in or keep them in a strong negotiating position, okay? Especially right now, you know, in a strong seller's inventory type of market, you know, it's really important with sellers not to lose that strong negotiating position. It's very easy to do. It happens all the time. In fact, we're going to cover some of those times. And I'm sure it's happened to many of you. It's very important to maintain that position for as long as possible uh, while we're negotiating. And that's the other thing to remember here, too, is we don't just negotiate once, okay, in a transaction. You know, we negotiate when there's an offer on a property. Buyers and sellers negotiate. And we also negotiate after inspections are done on a property. And there could be a negotiation if a property doesn't appraise for value. 
So there's there's multiple times that you know we could be negotiating over extensions. We could you know different terms of the contract can all be negotiated as different circumstances change. And so whether we maintain or acquire a position of strength throughout a transaction depends a lot about your ability to have those tough conversations with your clients. Okay, so let's start by talking about conversations with your sellers. Okay, with your sellers. So if we're talking about a conversation with your sellers, typically, and in, in, you know, when we have low housing inventory, very low supply and relatively high demand, um, which North America has seen for quite some time, typically, we are going to have sellers that are just naturally in a position of power and negotiating strength, right? So, but we want to maintain that, if not increase that, because we have that duty to advocate and negotiate on behalf of our sellers, okay? The duty is not to other realtors that we want to maintain good relations with. How we look amongst our professionals should be judged based upon how strongly we represent our sellers. Now, we always want to be polite and professional, but we don't, our job is not primarily to keep other agents happy. Our job is to make our sellers happy and our buyers happy and net them a most amount of money from a transaction. So the first and foremost way, I don't think I need to tell you guys a lot, is we always on the seller's end, we want to try obviously to get the highest price possible. I'm not gonna even go into that. I think you get that. So we're always trying to offer at the very highest price. Now, one strategy that's out there that's very, very popular right now, especially when we're listing property, is when we have the conversation with our seller on list price, when markets get very red hot and there's very low inventory and there's not many listings, oftentimes it's advisable to list a property at market value, not stretch it and bring it up higher, okay? Because if you list it at market value, then we have a greater chance of of attracting multiple offers, which will then bid up the price above asking, because that frenzy will get created between two people. We'll get a higher price under contract than we would have if we had just tried to price it up there and stretch the price naturally. You do it naturally, you're kind of sticking your neck out because someone might not go up and get it. And then you have to reduce it lower for where you would have started at market value later, because now people are wondering what's wrong with your property. Like, why didn't it sell? It's the one, you know, black eye that nobody wanted because we stretched our neck out too far. Not to mention, two people may not pop up to the top and get it, okay? Two people may not pop up to the top and get it. So that does happen. And and I do, by the way, I do realize, you know, in any area in North America, there are pockets that are in buyer's markets. I get that. You will see that, especially you'll see that when prices go up very quickly and they get a little ahead of themselves and they come back down. Um, you will see that by by large, most of North America for an extended period of time, like if you look at things over a two or three year area, will be in a general, on average, a seller's market where prices are accelerating. There's less than six months of inventory, things like that. Uh, and so that that is the definition between that buyer and seller market that defines who's in a position of power. It's are there more than six months of inventory? Most of North America has been somewhere between one and two months, nowhere near a buyer's market. So just because it goes from one or two months up to three or four months of inventory, that doesn't mean we're in a buyer's market. Just because you see prices being reduced doesn't mean we're in a buyer's market. It could mean that we just got too aggressive with our pricing and our comps. And now there's being a little bit of a correction to come back that often and last for six months it's a year at most but then if you look at the period of time generally speaking prices are still going up there's still less than six months of inventory therefore we're still generating in that seller's market so but but you will see those bubbles and pockets so i want to clarify that to make sure we all understand that um other than areas that are highly depressed you know you know oftentimes small towns where the major employer of the town moves and things like that you will see those anomalies pop up but for the most part we're going to see north america's in a generally trending up on home prices seller's market okay so in those scenarios when we do see a seller's market, those are the times where we, where oftentimes it's better to get our sellers to safely price their home at market. So then if we price it low enough, we get down into that feeding frenzy where people will chase it up. If they chase it up, they'll start to compete for the property and they'll, and they get competitive. And that's what a buyer's feeding frenzy is like. And what ends up happening then, if there's two of them going up, 
rather than just trying to lure one up to your high price. When there's two competing, then we can get a lot of other terms in our favor. Like we can get them to waive loan and, and appraisal contingencies. We can get them to put a cap on the amount above asking they'll pay or, or, or get them to agree that they will pay the difference if the property doesn't appraise at that high price that they're bidding it up to because it's their fault for bidding it up. They're willing to go up there, so we'll take yours, but if it doesn't appraise for that, you're gonna cover the difference. Things so they can waive their appraisal contingency, things like that. That's the neat advantage to that. And so as seller, you know, as agents, we love that. But the key is being able to articulate this negotiating position and how we achieve it through your pricing strategy to your seller. That's the hard part. Once it's priced and you're negotiating, I mean, the offers and counter offers speak for themselves. Um, so the negotiation is with the other side, but it's the conversation to come from that position of strength that's so difficult with your seller, okay? And don't worry, we are gonna talk about strategies for negotiating offers and counter offers back and forth. We're gonna get there, but I wanna make sure we understand that. So that is the first thing, okay? It's, it's getting that pricing in there and pricing it at market and then attracting multiple offers to bid up above rather than just pricing up above and taking that risk. Because um, that is the riskier move. And that's the key when you're, when you're having these conversations, you wanna use buzzwords like that. Okay, that they identify with. We talk about just going up there and trying to price it really high and stretch the comps and stretch the appraisal all by yourself. It's a risky move. That's a dice roll. It's a gamble. Those are the words we want to use with that strategy for pricing. And then when we're trying to talk about pricing it at market value to attract multiple offers to bid it up, we want to use words like that's the conservative play. That's the safe bet. And that way they, they feel safe with that because they should. It's much safer to price it at market and try to get multiple offers than it is to stick your neck out there and be this new pioneer that takes, you know, takes prices up to, the, to a higher price per square foot, let's say, or however you want to price it, if that makes sense, okay? So that's one strategy. Number two, you know, once we start receiving offers, then what, okay, so I say one question come in, what happens if the property doesn't appraise and the seller won't approve the loan? Well, that's usually when the, you know, at that point in time, if the, if the buyer waives their appraisal contingency, what the buyer is saying is I will pay the extra cash difference. The loan amount will stay the same. Um, so the lender will make the loan. You're just going to put more money down and certain, you know, certain buyers can't do that. They can't put up more money. So they fall off of the negotiations and the other offer that's pushing it up wins. That's more or less how that works. For those of you that are curious about what happens if it doesn't appraise. So someone's got to secure it. They got to get some extra, you know, an extra 10, 20, $30,000 or whatever the difference is from their, you know, family member. They got to borrow it out there. Hopefully they have it saved or something like that, you know, that type of thing. Um, so it takes a real strong, you know, a person in a strong financial position to actually bid it up above asking. You know, it's, uh, it's who can do it. And that's the, that's, the, that's the reason it's so neat when you have them bid it up because the ones that are willing to waive that appraisal contingency to chase that price up are the ones that know they're going to risk that because their agents tell them that. Hey, if it doesn't appraise, you're going to have to cover that difference. And that's why. So that's the idea behind it. Okay. Now, when those offers start coming in and you're representing the seller, understand the big fear of the seller is if we take one of these offers, whichever one we choose, or if we take one that we don't like, it's not perfect, and we don't wait for another one to come in that's better, we're taking our home off the market and people aren't going to want to put offers on. Okay, that's, that's the concern. Then we're stuck and tied to this buyer for a while. And then if for some reason they don't perform and they don't qualify or whatever, then we got to go back on the market. And once again, everybody wonders what's wrong with this house. Why didn't it go through, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Our, you know, our sellers may have put an offer on another house that they can't buy because this one's not going to close on time because the buyer didn't perform. It creates a lot of nightmares. And quite frankly, if these are your clients, there's almost no way that when a buyer backs out they're you know, that your client, the seller is going to say, that they had a great home selling experience with you <laughs> because it creates a lot of stress and anxiety. It may not be your fault, but either way, it's not a good home buying experience. So what we need to do is try to mitigate the chances of that happening on behalf of our clients to be truly doing our due diligence here, right? So one of the main things we also wanna do is ask for increased deposits. We need more money up front, okay? We need more money up front. So the first thing we wanna do is we wanna get more money up, okay? And everybody's contracts are different no matter where you are, what county you live in, state, province, you know, country, city. But, you know, every contract has the ability to make people put a larger increased deposit amount and then also ask for a second deposit amount. 
often called an increased deposit. So rather than ask for, you know, 1% or something of the purchase price, let's say it's a $500,000 home, rather than asking for 5,000, remember, we're bidding these people up because we priced it out market. It's very, since we don't just have one offer, we could say, hey, you know, I'd love to see you get, uh, give me 10,000 up front. And then, so that's number one. And then after your inspections are waived or after we clear your contingencies, in other words, you've inspected and we agree upon the repairs or it's appraised or both, we want you to put down another $10,000. Now this isn't additional money. They're just putting their down payment up earlier, you know, to tie it in. So they're less likely to back out. Okay. Now what you can do anywhere in North America is you can talk to your closing company, depending if you're a place that has escrow, a place that has title, a place that has attorneys or closing companies handling the closing of the property. You can put in the contract to release that money to the seller before close. I mean, if you've got, and this is very common in really hot markets, if you've got, you know, three or four offers on a property, it is not uncommon to require a buyer to release the deposits at some point in the transaction to the seller before closing. And boy, they're really not going to back out then. So you give them a chance to inspect it and make sure we're okay with the condition of the property, maybe make sure it appraises. And then those deposits are released. So you can have legal language to whoever, you know, whether it's title officer, escrow officer, attorney, depending where you're working, that's the person who's going to release the funds from the seller to the buyer prior to close. So they will know the exact language you need to put in the contract to be able to do that. And in really hot markets, that is very, very common because those buyers are doing whatever they can to stand out and get their offer accepted. And that's one way to do it is to allow that deposit to be released ahead of time. And boy, it's very hard for sellers to not pick that offer. It's like, ooh, I get the money now. There's actually no risk. What's all, I just got to keep it, you know, keep it off the market for this many days. And then I get that money. Otherwise, I put it back on the market and try to sell it again. So that's the second thing we can do, right, is we can move those dates up. All of our contingent dates need to move closer up. So, you know, scooting them up, you know, inspection contingencies, appraisal contingencies, and loan contingencies. Those are your big three in a contract, your biggest three negotiable terms, other than the deposit amount and, of course, the price that we can scoot up and make earlier. So, you know, we can require them to get all their inspections done in 10 days to waive their inspection contingent, to waive their appraisal contingency like we talked about earlier, or put a, maybe a cap on how much that they're willing to go up. You know, they'll come up an extra $10,000 if it doesn't appraise, but they wanna put a cap on that, things like that. So we put, we put, we move those dates up. So now maybe say it's 10 days to get it inspected. They gotta get a home inspector or at least a contractor they know or somebody in there and through it so that they're okay with it in 10 days. Now as a seller, I'm only taking it off the market 10 days. Then they've gotta release you know, they've got to put in an extra $10,000 increased deposit at the end of 10 days and have a release to me. I mean, the only thing I'm risking as a seller by taking this offer is 10 days off the market. Then after that, I'm locked down because I've got their deposit released. Um, they've put more money up. They've waived their inspection contingency. Things are looking pretty darn good, right? So we want to tighten the amounts of the deposits. We want to tighten the timeline for the deposits, okay? I'm sorry, the timeline for the uh, for the contingencies, excuse me. We wanna tighten those up and then we wanna get increased deposits, right? Up front and the second deposit as well too, okay? So that's very, very crucial. Those are the, and then as we move forward, well, I'll save some of these on the buy side. I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about the buy side. And I know you guys wanna hear, I see some questions coming about the buy side. We are getting to the buyers. I'm just organizing these sellers first and buyers next, okay? And, and, and I, I see the question there. You know, all you have to do, understand it, you know, in a very sharp market, the key is you just got to, you know, cover yourself. So as a buyer, you just need to tell them, hey, you will lose your deposit if you do what they say. But if you don't do what they say, you'll lose the house. That's the information. That's the facts. I know it seems hard to you, but again, this is real estate, guys, and it's a tough business. So you got to have hard conversations. It's not going to be all, I mean, doctors have to tell their patients they have cancer too. You know, accountants have to tell people they're bankrupted. We have to tell our clients that the only way to get this house is possibly lose their deposit. And so as long as you say that and you can either cover yourself on your, your, your local forums or put it in an email to cover yourself that you've told them that if for some reason we don't like the inspections and you want to back out of this, you're going to lose your deposit. 
If for some reason you can't perform, you're going to lose your deposit. If you're really cautious about this, you know, talk to an attorney about it. But that is what this seller is requiring. So as long as we disclose this fax, we're usually okay. But you will see in, you know, in very hot markets, and if you're a buyer and you're having a hard time finding a house or, or getting a house for your seller, some of these things you can do. You know, you can just tell them, hey, guys, we can take some risks. But they are, in fact, risks. But oftentimes, if you wonder why your offers aren't getting accepted and everybody else's are, and you're, you think it's just because of price, it's because other buyer's agents are taking risks. And those buyers are taking risks, and they're aware of the risks usually. It just gets riskier because it's not all about price. Price is, I mean, you wouldn't be in this class if, it's, if you know, if someone needed to tell you how to negotiate price. I mean, that's real easy. Go higher than that. <laughs> but you'll see sometimes you are higher than them and you're not getting it anyway. And that's because of these other terms. So I'm trying to teach you the difference there. That's the idea. Your fiduciaries disclose the information. It's up to the client to decide whether they're going to take the risk or not. To me, if you know that they could take this risk and you don't tell them it's an option, you're actually breaching your fiduciary, not giving your clients all of the information they need to get what they want. And what they want is a house, right? So that's the idea, okay? So increased deposits are very common. In fact, they're, mo they're on most forms as a standardized item. You, you just probably used to putting zero there. If you fill it in with a number, you know, an increased deposit. And getting it released is even, you know, even scarier. Because boy, once it's released, you're not going to likely get it back. But again, that's the risk in some markets we have to take when there's not a lot of listings, when supply is low and demand's high. Okay? So that's an important one. Good question there. Good questions there. Okay? Now, I want to switch gears here for a second because we are going to get into the buyer side. And all these kind of work both ways. So I know it's tough to kind of refrain from buyer side questions. One thing I want to know, the last thing I want you to know on, on the listing side, and it's going to segue us to the buyer side, is in a seller's market, okay, we all are on a buyer's market or whenever. We always want to try to list on Wednesdays. Don't be listing on Thursdays and Fridays. Okay. Don't be listing on Thursdays and Fridays. Okay. Why? Because number one, most people decide which houses they're going to show on Wednesdays and Thursdays because then they have to schedule them. They have to talk to their client, talk to the seller, talk to the listing agent. So they start looking midweek. So you'll actually attract more buyers if you list it a little bit earlier. It builds up a little bit more anticipation into the weekend. Okay, that's number one. Then once we get into the weekend, what ends up happening is everybody's got their scheduling, all they're showing, and we have a lot more attraction at it. Here's the other thing. You know, agents will make complaints like, man, if you're a real estate agent, especially low producers, low producers always get so upset about you know how many phone calls they get from other agents that want to see property over the weekends and have questions over the weekends and usually those low producers just haven't been taught stop listing your properties for sale on fridays because then you're going to get all the calls on saturdays and sundays but if you list it on a wednesday all of those calls are going to happen on wednesdays and thursdays and fridays when you're in a better position to receive them when the other agents are in a better position to make them so it's actually better at attracting interest for your clients right so so and then if you are in a buyer or seller's market, you're going to get more activity on the listing at that time, okay, over the weekend. And if you're in a very low inventory market, what ends up happening on a Monday is usually say, hey, we're going to, we're going to present all the offers from the weekend on that Monday. So that way they still have a chance to have conversations with you on Monday. You and your sellers can enjoy your weekend a little bit more. So it's not so hectic on the phone over the entire weekend. And we're actually working when most people are receptive and want to work more, which is on weekdays because they can schedule things on Wednesdays and Thursdays and ask all their questions over the phone that they need to ask on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Any final conversations or concerns or decisions end up on the Mondays. So we always list on Wednesdays. Here's another tip, regardless of what market you're in. Always schedule your closings by closing dates, okay? Don't do it 30 days from closing or 45 from closing. Look and see what date that is and make sure you put the date in the contract so that it closes on either a Tuesday or a Wednesday, okay? Because if you have all, you know, like most low producers, they're always, they have these terrible closings that are high stress. Top producers don't have them. Low producers do. Why? Low producers have a lot of Friday closings. And that's the worst you can do. Because if it, that means you have to close absolutely on time. Because if you have a Friday closing, the buyers, the sellers, everybody has scheduled their movers to happen on that Saturday. 
And if you don't close on Friday, it pushes you all the way to Mondays and then you ruin everyone's lives. So they get really mad and really hot and it's a nightmare. People start moving in and people are still moving out. They yell and you're working all weekend. It's high stress and you blame real estate. It's not real estate's fault. It's because you weren't taught to always schedule your closings on Tuesdays and Wednesdays to provide everyone a little cushion so that if it pushes to a Wednesday, it's just a Wednesday. It pushes to a Thursday. It's just a Thursday. Most people are doing their moving on the weekend anyway. So you got a few days cushion in there. So we always don't. And here's the other thing, you know, your closing companies, your title companies, your escrow companies, your, your, your closing attorneys, they all are busiest on Fridays because of all those low producers scheduling their closings on Fridays. So because of it, they're likely to make all their mistakes on that Friday too, because they've got all these loans being funded at the same time. And everyone's trying to record documents at the same time. All of that's happening on a Friday. And when all of that's happening on a Friday, it increases the likelihood even further that we're not going to close on time and you got some really angry clients. So always try to schedule our closings in those negotiations of counteroffers on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and, and educate your fellow real estate professionals. Educate them so they know that because it's amazing how many people have not been taught that. Um, and to me, that's just one of the first things we should teach every agent is man, schedule things in the middle of the week. Okay, your listings go live in the middle of the week. Your listings close in the middle of the week. Give yourself some cushion. Don't run it too tight. There's too many people at play that can screw up. They can get sick. They can make mistakes for us to not close on time. Okay, guys? So put them in the middle of the week. Listings go live in the middle of the week. Listings close in the middle of the week. Okay, so let me explain a negotiating process here. And I will get to the buyer's side and the seller and the buyer's market that we're going to talk about. Uh, but right now, I want to I break that up a little bit. And I want to explain to you, regardless of what your marketing is, an actual negotiation strategy, okay? So this is where we're actually negotiating between buyer's agent and seller's agent on behalf vicariously through our clients. But we're making offers and counter offers and what those amounts are over time, okay? Um, so it's a little bit tricky on how we describe this, but I'm going to actually share my projection with you here so you can see it. And it is a process that we call monkey in the middle. Okay. I named that off, off of my daughter's soccer exercise. I had the privilege of coaching my daughter's soccer team for a while before soccer parents drove me out of it. And, uh, and we had this game called monkey in the middle where all, all the soccer players would stand in a circle and, they, and then one of them had to be in the middle and try to steal it as the others were all passing to each other. And that was the monkey in the middle. And uh, once someone stole your pass, you had to go be the monkey in the middle, right? Well, in real estate, the monkey in the middle adheres to, we don't want to be the monkey in the middle. Same as with this soccer exercise. Okay. So um, I'm going to explain the process as I go. And I'm going to use a demonstration with you uh, for you on my pad here. Okay, but as we do it, I, I want to make sure you understand that this strategy is something that we want to be explaining to our clients before and during negotiations. So we do it before to set expectations, to set proper expectations. And then we're going to do it during just to show that we're an expert and that we have a marketing strategy. Because usually just agents have no strategy whatsoever. We just see how much they came. Then we, then we say, okay, we can maybe get by with just coming back far, you know, this far. And so it's really just off the seat of our pants. We don't know what we're doing. There's no plan. There's no goal. There's no nothing. So all these people that have told you that they've got this plan, you know, or they've sold houses in the past many of times, they've actually never really seen a marketing or a negotiation strategy before. So it's your chance to really impress. And if you impress, they look at you as an expert. And if they look at you as an expert, they'll actually listen to what you say. But if they think they know best, they'll argue with you all the time. If they argue with you all the time, they will not do what you say. And if they don't do what you say, they're going to actually make less money because they don't know how to drive the bus. They don't know how to negotiate, but they always think they do, right? So it's very important we prove to them we know what we're doing. And that's why we set the expectations up front and we keep them apprised of this as we go forward. Okay, so let's say, and I know you have all different types of list prices, but this will work for anyone. Our list price 
is $600,000, okay? And we have an offer come in of $500,000, okay? So we're $100,000 apart, okay? And of course, if you have multiple offers, we're gonna do this with each one. We're, we're assessing each offer as it comes in, one at a time, okay? The reason we call it monkey in the middle is the first thing we do with every offer is we figure out where the middle point is, okay? Because if you look at, over time, if you average out buyers and sellers markets, generally speaking, as if I'm representing the seller, I have gotta be okay with a middle point to even entertain an offer. So if my middle point, whoops, I wrote that wrong, is $550,000 and I'm okay with 550 or it's close to me being okay with it, I'll go ahead and entertain this offer and counter offer. And on the buyer's side, what I'll set the expectation with is, hey, if that's 600,000 and you wanna come in at 500,000, I've gotta be okay with the middle point 550 to even make that $500,000 offer. Okay, and maybe they're not, but at least I set the expectation that they're gonna have to move off that number right off the bat. I mean, you might say, well, we'll make it anyway. Maybe we'll get lucky and they'll come down further. But I want to let you know that to negotiate in good faith, you should always look at that middle point because most negotiations move very close to the middle. They get put together, okay? So you always wanna look at that middle point. Now, again, if you're in a strong buyer's market, it may move closer to the 500,000 side. If you're in a hot seller's market, it may move up to that side. I get that. But we still talk about that middle point because that's the expectation of the perception from the other side. Your, your, your client's always gonna say, well, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm never going down to 500. And I said, well, that's okay. Let's look at 550. Let's look in the middle, right? And then if I'm representing my seller, for example, which I'm gonna use the seller side on this too, because in most places, like I said, it, but this works just the same for the buyer, so don't worry. In most places, we are in a seller's market, most places in the world today, okay? So with that said, but again, it's not gonna matter whether you're seller or buyer. So let's come in, let's say that $500,000 offer comes in. The first thing I'm gonna do is establish the 550 number. And my job, if I represent the seller, so in this, in this hypothetical, I represent the seller. The first thing I'm gonna do is try to pull them off this middle, okay? So the first thing I'm going to do there is say, okay, if, if I were gonna negotiate towards the middle and end up and be okay with 550, let's say I'm in a month with six, in a location of six months of inventory, and it truly is a flat market and prices aren't going up, <clears throat> at that point in time, I might say, okay, the middle point between 600,000 and 550 is $575,000, okay? That's the middle point. So I would counter with 575 if my seller was good with getting to a 550 middle point. And I will explain this right to my client, that this is what I would have you counter with, and that would put us on track we may have to do a few more dances back and forth with our counters, but that would put us on track towards 550. But in this case, let's say it's a strong seller's market. Let's try to pull them north of that 550 number, okay? So what we might do right there is instead of counter 575, let's get them on a higher trajectory. Let's move them to a counter of five. 85, okay, 585. So now we're increasing the trajectory up to 585, okay? So what that'll do, if we take a look at that and we try to anticipate a buyer counter over, so that's the first step just so you get it, is we look at what the middle is and then we take the middle of the middle point and our list price and determine the middle point between those two. And we know that number is what's gonna be, keep us on the tightest trajectory towards the middle. If we wanna go above the middle, then we increase that amount. And then you have to use a little, you know, it can't be totally mathematical. We have to, you know, if we wanna show a good faith move of 585, you know, I would probably counter at a 585 if I only had one buyer's offer. But if I had six buyer's offer, heck, I might just come back to 595. So you have to kind of take into consideration how many offers on the buy side you have. In this case, I'm gonna say I represent a seller with one offer. 
So I'm going to show a good faith move because I want them to realize that I don't want them to go away entirely, but I need them to come up a little bit more because I don't, I'm not happy with 550. Okay. If that makes sense. All right. So let's say at that point, because I'm at 585, that actually creates a new middle for us. Okay. One of two things is going to happen here. Either the buyer is going to chase us up or the buyer is going to hold and be stubborn and try to keep that middle at 550. If he's stubborn to keep the middle at 550, he's, I only came down 15,000. He's only going to go up 15,000. And again, I'm explaining all of this. Whoops. That's 515 K. Okay. That's stubborn. That means he's only going to come up 15 and we're still on track for 550. Or he's going to realize, wow, they didn't come off very much. We might want to get a little bit more aggressive or another offer is going to come in or they're going to make us go away. So let's come up all the way to 535. If we come up all the way to 535, now we've moved the middle from 550 to 560. Because that 560 number now is directly in the middle of my counter of 585. It's 25 below it and 25 above their counter offer of 535. And that's why even though we're still in negotiations and we're still um, $50,000 apart, I can argue to my buyer, we just moved the middle up $10,000. And they don't get frustrated in the negotiations. They actually see your strategy is working before we've got it under contract. So they see what you're doing. They see you're slowly pulling them up by selectively deciding on the amount of your counter. We're not squaring them up, but we came down 15, they came up 20, and all of a sudden they're moving, I mean, they came up, um, yes, 20. All of a sudden we're moving them a little further and that middle is sneaking up further and further and further, okay? So when we get to that range of... 565.85. Now we start thinking about what that seller's counter is going to look like. Okay. So at that point, we need to come back on this 535. So this seller's counter could be 585. It's where we left last time. And then what we do is we look at the middle, our new middle of 560. We subject 560. And that's going to give us an amount of 25K, $25,000 difference between those two. If we cut that in half to find the middle again, so we divide it by two, we're going to get 12.5 thousand dollars if we split the middle again with this new middle we've created okay so that means we we could subtract 585 and take 12.5k from it and that would give us a number of 572.5 and that would keep us on course for this $560,000 middle that we have just moved it to. However, we could then be telling our seller, again, we're explaining all this to our seller, that we want to move this middle even further. We're going to keep, we don't want to get stuck in that middle. Let's move it up even further. Okay. So instead of offering 572, let's instead offer 580,000. Okay. If we offer 580, then we can add another $7.5,000. That's the difference between 572, what we were going to offer, and 580. We can add another $7.5,000 to our middle of 560 and now we have moved the middle up to 567.5 thousand.
Okay. So if we offer 580, now we've got the middle up to, and we're on this trajectory now. And then I'm not going to keep doing this on and on and on, but you get the idea. Every time there's a counter, we can show them that we're making progress, that each negotiation is pulling the middle up towards the seller. And the same thing can be done back down towards the buyer. And that's the idea. Don't get stuck at the monkey in the middle up front. Learn to pull the other party up towards you throughout the process and then show these conversations. It's never been easier, especially in the Zoom world, right? If you're comfortable working on Zoom, it's extremely easy to then pull people your way by, by showing a monkey in the middle, right? Now, what you could, now I call it monkey in the middle. You know, you could call it meat in the middle um, with your clients so as to not be quite so offensive with calling someone a monkey. But the idea is not to be that monkey in the middle, right? So the point is we're going to pull them up. We're going to show our work. We're going to illustrate that there is actually a strategy here. And it all depends on how they react to us. Do they pull us up? Do they? Does that other side come up or do they hold firm? If they come up, we moved them. If they hold firm, uh-oh. Now we're at a point where we might have pulled them as far as we can. Are we comfortable with that new middle? Because they don't seem to be coming, right? And that's when we have to try other things and get more difficult with our other terms, like our inspections, our negotiations, our appraisal contingencies. But if we're just negotiating price, the key is to keep pulling that middle number up further and further and further, okay? So with that said, that's the meet in the middle exercise. And that's how we explain it. You can get on Zoom. You can do just what I did. Um, you can be sitting side by side for them, work it out on a piece of paper. I, I do know it's easier to see because there's a lot of math there. It's very hard to say this to someone. So it's better if you can share a screen and show it to them or sit side by side and show them something like that because it, there, there's a lot of math. Now, again, that it doesn't the amount of math that you see there is, you know, you're never going to be doing that much math at once because I just went and showed you each counter offer. They don't all happen the same sitting. So you just kind of show them, you know, you get one counter, it's how do we respond to it? So you just show them one little chunk of math. There I showed you the offer, one counter offer, our counter offer, and their counter offer, which does take a little bit of time, but usually it's just a little bit. We're just talking about one, you know, and the amount of counter offers you can expect back and forth. It really just depends on, you know, where that initial offer comes in and how strong your market is. You know, if you're in a strong buyer's market and that offer comes in, really low, you know, it might take a lot of counter offers to get that seller down and, and vice versa, a strong seller's market and that offers. But if, if the offer is pretty close to the asking price, it's not going to be a lot of counters, right? And then of course, it depends how many other offers get made on the property. If there's multiple offers on it, we're going to see counter offers all over the place. So it really depends on all those circumstances and it depends how stubborn they are. If they come up and keep meeting your new middle because you keep countering light and they keep getting aggressive and, and getting up there to match you, and they allow you to move the middle up, you know, it, it can move pretty quick. Um, it can move pretty quick, but if they hold stubborn, it can take a bit. It can take a bit, right? Okay, so now more focused on the buyer side, right? Some things that we can do to get buyer's offers accepted in a seller's market, we'll start there. In a seller's market, so in a market where, you know, people are competing and, 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 and properties are selling close to asking price, and there's oftentimes multiple offers. You know, one of the most important things we can do is get underwriting approval if there's, and of course I'd love a cash. People love cash, even though it's the same amount of money to the seller, it usually represents a stronger buyer. Um, so I would want proof of funds because a lot of people will say it's cash and then switch to a loan later. So I'd like to see a bank statement or a money market account or something that shows liquid funds. They really do have the cash. If they do have a loan, get underwriting approval, get that lender to get it to the underwriter first so that we have a written letter from the underwriter saying, Hey, we've got this person. We just need a property. This borrower is approved. Now we just need a property to appraise. That's it. So get underwriter approval first. Don't just wait find a property and then quickly get a letter, a prequal letter from a lender. Uh, that won't work in the seller's market anymore. You need to get that whole loan application submitted to get underwritten approval. Then just add, and if you didn't do this, you don't know what I'm talking about. Trust me, every lender doesn't. So get it done. Okay. That's one way to do it. Um, another thing you can do is waive a lot of your contingencies. And again, you have to disclose the risks. Like we talked about earlier, when we started talking about the buyers, you know, we could, we talked about how a buyer can uh, increase their deposit, allow the seller to release their deposit. You know, we can speed up our contingency periods. I told you about that is just say, hey, we'll get all our inspections done in 10 days, you know. Another thing you can do is just not have an inspection. And the way you do that is you either have an inspector 
or a very good friend that's a contractor go through that house with you the first weekend it's live like when you see it first your buddy contractor goes with you and hopefully your buddy contractor knows how to look at it good enough and does the inspection with you before you even write the offer then it's like hey we we're going to take it as is we already took a look at it we're good that's magic to somebody's ears cuz that means you're not going to come back and renegotiate with them later okay uh and that's very very powerful that's very very powerful you know so get that inspector now again you want to cover yourself there and explain that hey if you know a home inspector is what we advise but again i get the fact you know if you waive that home inspection that may be what it takes to get your offer chosen over the other offers which is very very important okay very very important so as long as they know the consequences that they may have to go through the buy their house or they might lose their initial deposit if they try to back out because they didn't remain they didn't keep their contingency uh inspection contingency in effect because they waived it right off the bat again that's their choice they they take that risk as long as we tell them about the peril of it and i recommend doing that on one of your forms or doing it in writing somehow maybe just in an email where you make them aware of it you just say hey i mean you know you know because we're taking this risk i'm required to tell you of that risk in writing that's something that you know we're required to do in my office and you send that you send that email tell them hey if for some reason you waive your consent your inspection contingency and these guys back out you might lose your deposit you know or whatever the whatever the risk is in your area right the other thing that's really important is don't have contingent offers and and you know that's a real important especially in a seller's market you know no one wants to sell your house to So you're going to have a lot of clients out there that say, "Man, I don't want to list my house for sale until I find a home to buy." And that unfortunately stumps a lot of agents. They don't know what to do with that. I got to find a home to buy before this guy will list with me. And that is a huge mistake. Don't ever do that. Um because it won't work. I mean, you're going to, you know, in a in a hot seller's market and you go out there and you find a home to buy and your house isn't even up for sale yet. and you put an offer in on it you know they're like hey our house is ready to go i don't even know what your house is for sale for i'm not going to accept yours i mean i don't know what you're going to even price it for and i don't know if you're going to be realistic about offers and everything you're just going to tie my house up the whole time why your house doesn't sell i mean at least i have control over selling my house and that's why in in, in strong seller markets there's no houses being purchased on contingency So the idea of finding a home to buy and then selling your house just doesn't work. That's why no one does it. That's why contingent offers don't get accepted and that's why 99% plus of offers that are accepted in any seller's market are never contingent. So how are all these other people doing it that have homes to sell? Well, there's no risk. Number 1, we can buy a home, we can actually list your home for sale contingent upon you finding a replacement property that's called a seller's contingency. You can do that anywhere in North America. So you can list your property, especially in a hot seller's market. Buyers will take it. They're like, "Hey, you got to get hey, well, we just want to get this house right now. We just need a freaking house." So we'll take it. And it'll be contingent upon you finding a replacement property. At least we get yours locked up. No one else can take it from us. So if there's ever a market to do a seller's contingency, it's the one that we're seeing across the world today right now. Okay? So that's number 1. But even if you couldn't do a seller's contingency for whatever reason because a buyer wouldn't agree to it. You know, I'd explain most of the time you don't need to anyway because by the time, you know, now you're really serious, you've got your house going up for sale, you're going to start looking very seriously. We got to get your house up for sale, we may have to take photos, we got to get those photos edited, we might have to get stagers, then we got to get it up for sale and then, you know, agents got to schedule showings and they got to show it, then we got to get offers that come in and then and only then do we need to make a decision. Cuz then we can counter. I mean, we can counter longer closing periods, we can counter lease back provisions, we can counter our seller's contingency, or we could just say no, we don't want to sell it to you because we haven't found a replacement property. So it's not like they're going to be living under a freeway overpass here. They are protected all the way through until we accept an offer. And there's all those different layers we can try. And if it's a seller's market, you're going to get one of those because buyers are just trying to find houses. Houses are like blood diamonds. They'll do anything to get one. So it's very easy to negotiate a seller contingency, a lease back, an extended closing period, or whatever. It's never been easier than it is in most markets right now. Okay, so understand that it's very important. Then they can be a strong buyer because now they go out on the buy side and they don't have contingencies, or at least their house is on the market about to be sold, 
and everybody can see what it's listed for and, and make sure that you've got it up for a fair price or they can or you can show them that it's under contract even because usually things sell pretty quickly. So in those types of scenarios, at least you're up for sale. So everybody, the reason that very few people go the contention route is because they put their house up for sale first. And once they put their house up for sale first, at that point in time, everyone then knows they can actually get their feet, their other foot out and go buy first. And that's why so many people are able to make the move. That's how everyone's doing it that has a house to sell first. That's why everybody's not doing contingencies. It's such a small percentage of the market is. Everybody's seeing that there's really no risk because we're predicted with all those layers of protection. And until ultimately, we can just say, no, we don't want to sell it. Um, that's fine. We thought we could find a contingent offer. We haven't been able to find one. So unless you want to, you know, give us a contingency, then we're not going to sell it to you. You have the final, the final say there. And very few people ever have to go that far. We almost always find a replacement property. Um, it's like well over 95% of the people find a replacement property. Very rarely does not one of those types of negotiating counteroffer terms save us and get to come into play there. Okay. So that's one, that's one very important thing to remember. Okay. For those of you on the buyer's side in a buyer's market, um, it's much easier. Buyer's markets are, you know, it's much easier to negotiate on the buy side in a buyer's market. I'll tell you right now, uh, the buy side in a buyer's market. I mean, you can leave your contingent. I mean, it's not fun as an agent, that's for sure, because your deals fall out all the time in a buyer's market. Listings don't sell very well in a buyer's market. So buyers will, you know, there's a lot more listings too. So buyers will back out of one listing because a new one just comes up because there's a lot of inventory. Um, if you, you know, so there's no way to be in a buyer's market and not have a ton of inventory. So it's real easy to represent a buyer. We just get much more aggressive on our prices. We can reduce our deposit amounts. We can leave contingencies in effect. I mean, with loans and things all the way up till funding. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to remove loan contingencies until the very end. And you're supposed to back out you know, based on problems with your loans, but you could leave your inspection contingencies in place a lot longer too. So you can move those contingencies. It's basically the opposite of everything we just said. You can move your contingency dates back, get your inspection of your deposits down if you want. I mean, I, I don't think there's a lot of advantage to decreasing deposits because you can always back out and get them back. Um, we don't need to release any deposits. We can extend our timelines out so we have more time to do these things and more time to negotiate the exact same way. It's much easier negotiations in a buyer's market because you don't have time constraints and there's not a lot of competition for listings. So it's just you, you know, playing a waiting game with your sellers. Um, much easier. It's much more tactful in a seller's market. It's fast. There's a lot of competition. You can lose the property uh, to another person much, much more readily. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Trainer Podcast, sponsored by Eisenhower Coaching and Consulting. For more information about real estate coaching or to watch Brian's training videos, check out therealestatetrainer.com or find us on social media. And remember, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they're available.